Laura, whoa, I was going to say, can you hear me? But you can. (laughs) Do you hear click, click, click from the earring? Because the other night, there was a, there was a class here the other night. I taught Monday night. And, uh, uh, then in the, uh, they take a break on Monday night and, uh, uh, which we never do here. Everybody takes their own break whenever they need to. Uh, but they do take a break and one of the people operating the, uh, uh, the video stuff, uh, came up in the, in the break and said, we need to take off your earring because you're clicking. But I don't think it's clicking. No, different, different. Um, I won't shake too much. Just a little shaking. Just a little shaking. Uh, I was thinking, uh, before you go away, Laura is our uh, person who helps out on Wednesday morning doing the, doing the videos and the, well, not video. I wish they, I think Spirit Rock should start to uh, live stream the Wednesday morning class. That would be nice. I'm talking about it a little bit because I, I see we're getting more people and it would be nice. Um, anyway, uh, Laura's been away a little bit now. She's back and she was just telling me about... Um, she was in China for three weeks teaching at a Chinese bilingual uh, holiday camp because it's a holiday for the Chinese New Year. So I said, what can you say in Chinese? Anybody here speaks Chinese? No? So what can you say? I can't say a whole lot. I was the lucky beneficiary of a Stanford-educated Chinese national who became my my teaching assistant and translator, which was wonderful. Uh, But I did learn a few words and embarrassed that I didn't, was not able to learn more, but I learned hello. I'd say hello. Hello. Ni hao. Ni hao. Ni hao. I learned how to say thank you, which is probably what I said the most. So that was shishi. Shishi. Yeah. And then I learned the word teacher so that I could go through customs and say teacher. Uh, and that's laoshi. 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 And I learned the word for huh? <laughs> <laughs> Which is shima. Shima? Huh? What? What did you say? So, okay, four yeah. words. Ha- let I wonder how many languages can you say hello and thank you in? So, hello and thank you is? Uh, ni hao. Ni hao. Ni hao and shishi. Shishi. Okay, who has another one? Bonjour. Bonjour. Merci. Hola. Hola. Gracias. Buongiorno. Hmm? Guten Tag. Shalom. I, I, I want to go back to the Norwegian because I didn't hear it. Wait. Oh, well, do the thing. Do the thing. Do, do the do the. Uh, 
Elizabeth has one, so now, but we all have to say it back, so let's just do that. And that's Norwegian, and Elizabeth is going to give you a microphone. Tusen tak. Duh. Okay. Now, okay. And uh, thank you? That was thank you. That was thank you. How, what is Hello. I know how to say hello in in Swedish. Hello. I think they say goodbye also the same. Hello. My son-in-law is a Swede. I when I asked him to teach me a few minimal words, I said, "Teach me how to say so nice to have met you, glad to have met you." Everybody says uh uh pleased to have met you. And he said, no, we don't say that in Swedish. I said, well, what do you say when somebody leaves? You say goodbye. I said, well, what if you're pleased to have met them? He said, well, they'll just know it, you know. But uh, I I think I find that very interesting. Okay, it seems like, you know, in in Spanish you say, mucho gusto en conocerla. You know, it's nice to say that. So can you say, very nice to have met you in another language? Enchanté. I was in Chinese in certain southern provinces that were so impoverished, they didn't say hello, they said, Have you eaten? Ah. Did you find Leo? Have you eaten yet? It was the greeting that first thing out of somebody else's mouth, it somebody else's ears. Oh, you know what? That made tears, Ellen, that made tears in my eyes for a minute. Cultures, I would imagine as well, that, that we know for a fact up until maybe, you know, maybe after the, you know, probably the 50s, this was something that you'd go into the countryside and people would say to you, Nietzsche fun mayo, have you eaten yet? That's really touching, yeah. That's touching because it means you're looking out for the other person, not uh-oh, it's like stepping forward. What else do we know in terms of greeting? Arigato. Arigato. Who said arigato? Arigato oh. in Japanese. It is. Arigato gozaimashita. Yeah. What is that? Capcunka, Thai. Thai? Hmm? Hello in uh, Indonesian. In Indonesian? Yeah. Say it again. Selamat pagi. Thank you is terima kasih. Jumbo. What is that? Swahili. Swahili. And Exanti. Thank you. Oh, there you go. Aloha. Mahalo. Mark. In Japan, you might say, Genki desu ka? Are you well? Oh, Genki desu ka, yes. Are you well? You might say, Ogenki desu ka? The ka is the question. Yeah. Which is, are you well? And the answer is genki desu. Yes. I am well. Yeah. I'm very interested in greeting. <laughs> That's why it's so interesting to me that my son in law says, Swedes don't say, very nice to have met you. It just seems to me so odd. <laughs> I'm sure anthropologists could make a lot out of that, and it's probably not be true. 
So I'm very glad to meet all of you today. First of all, Brahmani and Asa back. Ta-da! Walking on their two feet and being well. Are you all well, Ace? Almost there. Who else is back after having not been here in a long time? What's your name? Amy. Amy. Amy, welcome back. Who else has never been here before? Whoa, what's your name? Mark. Mark, where do you live? Pleasanton. And you came today all the way from Pleasanton. That's great. That's great. I'm hoping that they start to live stream Wednesday morning because it's getting harder and harder for people to come and ecologically it's not so great. But it's really nice to have a lot of people here also. It makes a really... There will, there will always be. Who else has never been here before? What's your name? Lynn. And where do you live? I live in Western Massachusetts. Oh! In the city of Western Massachusetts, or Western? Western. Actually, uh, a small town called Montague, which is near Amherst. Ah, about an hour from Barry, then. Yeah, yeah, I know that part of the country because the Insight Meditation Center is in Barry, Massachusetts. Did you ever go there? Yeah, quite a bit. And sit on retreat there. So we've been in the same place and breathe the same air. A friend of mine who just got home from being on retreat there said it looks fantastic. It's been all renovated and it's beautiful and new and yeah. that's great. The dorms are especially all much nicer. Very nice. Very nice to hear about. I like to think about uh, the um, the the people who own that monastery before the people uh, the the insight meditation folks uh, bought the property in 1973 I think uh, were uh, a Catholic order of monastics they were the uh, blessed sacrament fathers and that was their novitiate for a long time and then when they stopped having so many novices they needed to sell the place and that had big letters on the front that said Blessed Sacrament Fathers. And they took off the letters because uh, now it was passing over to the people teaching Insight Meditation. And they took of those letters, they took the letters M-E-T-T-A and they put them up like the, like the program changes in the marquee in the movies. And you take the letters down and you put them up in a new way. So now it says M-E-T-T-A. And the street that it's on is Pleasant Street. (laughs) And the uniforms of the uh, police and the fire say Tranquil and Alert, which is the motto of Barry, Massachusetts. And it was before these folks bought the property. So if you were into believing about da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, that would be it. Who else has not been here before? Yeah. Um, I'm from Joy, and I'm from Kalamazoo, Michigan. Wow. Are you here on a holiday? I'm with my daughter. I live in Strasbourg, Chelsea. So she decided I've always wanted to come, so I'm glad you did. It's your birthday. Happy birthday. 
Happy birthday. Kalamazoo is one of those words that's often in uh, songs because it's good to rhyme with. But it's also snowing and cold there right now. Yeah, I have a, my college roommate lives in Grand Rapids, so I talk to her all the time. Who else is new? Uh-huh. So you came the back way? Yeah. It's, isn't that the most beautiful ride? It's the most beautiful ride. That's right. That's right. I brought a friend here to see this room when it was built, when there was no class happening. And she said, it doesn't have to be a class happening. You could just come in here and sit, and you'd feel better. You would. Who else? Yeah. Wow. Uh, so you met together? Oh, you were with Pat and came down. Great, great, great. I love it that people come from all over. Who else? Yeah. I'm Eileen from Pleasanton. Uh, uh, you don't know him. But I do know Linda. Oh, okay. Did you all come together? No, but we did. Okay, well, here are Pleasanton people if you want to know. That's like Pleasant Street. Like, Okay. Anybody else? Oh, yeah, go ahead. What's your name? Janice. And I'm from San Francisco. Just. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome. And I'm Kiara, and I'm from Napa. Well, it's a big ride early in the morning. Not bad. Hmm? Not bad. Well, I'm glad that you're all here. And what we normally do... Ah, sorry. Well, I came Sunday, so I'm questioning. I've never been here. I'm Britta, and I'm from Novato. And she picked me up and drove me here. There you go. I'm glad you're here. Well, the thing we do on, on Wednesday mornings is, first of all, we find out who's here. I very much like that we keep up with people, you know, that... Uh, uh, a lot of the people, how many people have been coming to Spirit Rock? Though no, those are the people who are here for the first time. How many people would say they've been here more than six times? All right. How many people were coming to the Wednesday class when it was across the street in the old building? That's a lot of people. How many people think they were here since 2000? So the, the, how many people go, uh, 1995? Ah, look at that. I think 1990 is when we started to have classes across the street. So how many people think they were here in the very beginning? There you go. We were. So tell me your name again. Yours. Yeah. Jeff, I'd forgotten. In San Anselmo and in Carol Bass's house before that, even. Way back. Way back. <laughs> we are. <laughs> uh, and here we are. One of the things I want to say, so I don't forget to say it, by the way, is that um, tonight in um, 
tonight in San Rafael, if you live in San Rafael and it's convenient for you to get there, uh, uh, amassing themselves at 618 B Street in San Rafael at 5 o'clock. Anybody planning to go to this? I am planning to go to this. I just found out about it the other day. You're going, Mark. Um, it's an annual, it's, a, it's the second annual Gathering and Candlelight Walk for Love and Unity. And it's being sponsored by uh, Dominican Re- uh, University, the Canal Community Alliance, and the Congregation Red of Shalom. And they'll give you one of those candles that's lit up by a battery. And you take a little walk together. And my, my plan is that I'll be there at 5. It's going to be cold. I don't know how long I'll make it, but... Um, I think I have to keep walking as long as walking is happening and the job isn't finished. 618 B Street, Mo. You want to go? You want to pick me up? You want to pick me up about a quarter to five? Okay. Thank you. (laughs) Okay. So we settled that. I have my carpool. Uh, Mark, where do you live? Oh, you live the other. You live the other way, so we can't pick you up. We'll see you there. No, no, no. Mo is picking. Okay. <laughs> we have one little more piece of of uh, just community business. I will explain this quickly for the people who don't know what I'm doing. Um, a few weeks ago, I reported on. Um, I I wrote a story. And I told it to the class. I told the story to the class, and I wrote it down about observing a particular um, attitude of extreme kindness from the traffic guard at the corner of my street as he helped um, students at basic school cross the street. And um, I went. How did it go now? Uh, I told. I wrote. I saw this traffic guard doing a really kind job with an, holding an umbrella in one hand and a, a stop sign in the other hand and escorting little clumps of children across the street under the umbrella to get them safely across the street in the rain uh, in a tremendous uh, uh, wetsuit, big yellow wetsuit and he was a, a little-ish guy and uh, oldish, little-ish, oldish guy. And I realized as I saw him that I'd seen him on that corner I don't, a zillion times before. He's been there a long time. And I had never really looked at him. And because I was stopped at that corner, my foot on the brake and just and was raining, something about his attitude really captured my attention. And all of a sudden, the bleak mood that I hadn't even fully acknowledged was in my mind and as on my way here to teach from listening to the morning news or whatever all of a sudden that mood went disappeared and I realized I just loved that little guy he was being so solicitous to walk these children across the street like each one of them was the whole world which it is to its person you know which it is to its person and there was something about the care that he took that just moved me so much. I mean, I told people about it, and it moved them a lot. And then I went back, and I I wrote a story about it, 
And then I, I went back and I noticed that he was gone. I was going to tell him. I was actually going to tell him I saw you last week and he picked up my mood and wanted, I wrote a story about it. And he was gone and, I, and he is gone. And I went to the school and asked what happened. They said, yeah, a lot of people are asking about him because he was, oh, I, I, I saw the, a new replacement guard, a young woman, and she said he's in the hospital. He's very sick. So, see, everybody said, oh, all right, because we're that kind of people, you know. We are that kind of people. Then, so I went to the school, and I said, will you tell me his address so we can write him a card, each of us, and say, thanks for doing what you did. And they said, we can't give you his address, but if you write a card and bring it back here, we'll send it to him. And he's home from the hospital, but we don't know if he'll be back. And then, so I got cards, and I'm, I am now about to pass them out, and if you want to, you don't have to. Oh, here's a card for half the room, a card for the other half. Just say, thank you for your kindness, or the story of your kindness touched my heart, or I know you're a big help in Kentfield, thanks a lot, whatever. Or just sign your name, because it's just a thank you card. And I'll put the story in there, and I'll bring it back to the school, so they'll deliver it. So then... Two days ago, I was coming home, and I was sure I saw him out there again. I brought the card anyway, but I was sure I saw him. I thought, great, now he's better. Now, this morning, the woman is back again. Now I have a whole story in my mind about was that actually him? Was it a mirage? Was it somebody else? Was I seeing what I hoped to see in our my, so to speak, teaching part of the morning. I hope this is the teaching part of the morning. Uh, I want to show you a, a, a TED Talk about seeing what you'll think you'll see. Anyway, all talking about what do we really see when we say, I saw it with my own eyes. Uh, and I don't know about how he is. All I know is that his name is John. Mo, can I give that to you? And and you write something if you want to, or sign your name if you want to. You don't have to. You can also write, I heard about how kind you are, or whatever. And if he's better and he's back on the job, it still counts. You know, all the better if he's back and he's on the job. John. That's all I know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. You know what? I had an idea. I have a lot of ideas about what we'll do this morning, so we better start doing it. I had an idea that I would read you the, the meditation instructions. Every week I make them up, right? for years and years. They're all the same. Pay attention moment to moment in a relaxed way. And if something unrelaxes your mind, notice it. Bring a moment of intentional relaxation to the mind and body, and it'll stop being a problem. I could give the instructions in saying, sit down quietly. And whatever it is, don't make it worse. Don't struggle with it. You notice, okay, my neck hurts a little bit. Oh, I ate my breakfast too fast, doesn't feel so good. It's all right, that'll pass. Take a breath. Okay, in, out. I forgot to put the wash in the dryer. 
I'll do it later. The, uh, the mind conspires to tell you what you didn't do or what you're still annoyed at. Ace is looking at me like I forgot to do something, which I did. I'm sorry. Okay, Ace is back. No fooling around. I am looking up the meditation I want to lead you in. You look at the person next to you and tell them hello and make a friend. Ready, set, go. You have two minutes to have a best friend. We did not miss a single week while you were away. <laughs> Always remember that even after you and I are all gone, people will still be saying this is Ace's moment. <laughs> but it's, it's actually fantastic on a number of levels because we make ourselves a little more of a community and we meet people and we find there's a real person sitting there in that body which I'm about to say there's not any real person sitting in the body. It's just the body and the mind presenting itself. But nevertheless, <laughs> nevertheless, this is a book called Emptiness by Guy Armstrong, and I've enjoyed it a lot. And uh, talking about when the, the Buddha... Every summary of what the Buddha taught says the important things to realize... Uh, the insights that the Buddha brought to the world you know, in the years that, years that he was teaching 
was that there are three fundamental things that are absolutely true that are also timeless truths. They're the same true now as they were true then. And the three truths are the truth that everything that arises passes away, the, the truth of temporality, the, pr- the, the, the truth of things arise and pass away moment to moment, fast enough so that it seems like a movie and it seems like it's moving slowly. Uh, I saw a man with a t-shirt the other day that says, I always knew I was going to get old, but I didn't think it was going to happen so fast. So, but, and I think that's true for all of us. All of a sudden, say, ah, you know, where did this come from? But all the time, it's changing moment to moment to moment. And the mind that's operating through it um, changing moment to moment. And the second thing he taught was important to really know deeply is that the mind in struggle with what it can't change that's uncomfortable, that it would like to change, the mind that's in, in, in conflict or in not able to relax in the present moment, that the mind with imperative in it, that this present moment be other than what it is, is a mind that's suffering. That's the same true now as it ever was. It's the same true rich or poor or sick or well. The mind that's struggling with the truth of its experience is a mind that's suffering. And the third one is that every, really it's, a, it's they're all actually part of one another. Is empty of separate self. There's no one here. Every moment there's another I that's being born. There's no end to me because I end here, but my voice comes out here and you hear it and it gets translated through you and makes a difference in the world, in actions, not just mine, but mine and then other people's and other people's and other people's. So that we look like we are as big as our, our corporeal bodies, but actually... It's empty of barriers between things. It's just everything. And what is that that third uh, understanding, which is sometimes called the understanding of emptiness, which sounds like it's nothing in there, but it's not nothing in there. It's nothing that's permanently separate from anything else in there, is what it means. Everything is in there, which we've talked a lot about today. Everything is in there, and everything is contingent on everything else. And that really is in some ways the most, um, for me, it's the most crucial understanding that uh, sometimes we call it the understanding of karma, which sounds like in, in its least sophisticated form is you you get the fruits of your actions or something. But I want to make it into everybody gets the fruit of all the actions, that the world and the shape that it's in is not because of what I did, it's because of what everybody has been doing and is doing and could change what they're doing. And the world, I, I have to really, my faith is that the world could wake up, people could wake up and say, let's do it a different way, it's not turning out in a way that's going to support life and happiness. Let's all do it a different way. It could still do that. It depends on everyone waking up and getting that, Elizabeth. Oh, thank you, dear. (laughs) 
was annoying, huh? <laughs> you know, in the middle of a life where everything is perfect, the rattling ear, <laughs> hearing annoys. How many people got annoyed about any single thing so far today? <laughs> you think about it, yeah, something, too much traffic. Anyway, I wonder, that's what uh, Guy's book, I think, is a very important addition to nothing happens to somebody, everything happens to everyone, and how, how the mind can actually grok that and feel connected to everyone. So I'll read you Guy's um, meditation. But sit in a way that's comfortable for you. Here's a mindfulness of thoughts. When we're not mindful, when thoughts arise, we tend to get swept up in their content and spin out in proliferation. In the meditative approach, we see a thought simply as a present moment phenomenon that arises, persists, and passes away. Doing this, we can maintain mindfulness even when thought is present. Begin with mindfulness of breathing. When you've established some mindfulness, let go of the breath as a focus. Simply wait attentively and notice the first thought that comes. Pay attention from the first moment of its arising until it has ended. See if it's possible to stay mindful all the way through one thought. When it has ended, return your attention to the breath. Actually see if as the the thought arises, if you can see the thought arising and uh, say, you know, here comes a thought, because you can just tell. Here's the end of a thought starting. Is that you, there's a way to say, nah, I'm just taking this breath more steadily. And you see the, the breath, the thought, poof, goes away, like you blew it away or something. It's a way of seeing that they're really quite ephemeral. There's, it's an electrical squiggle, maybe. And sometimes, as he's saying, just let the thought ends end and return to your breath. Now let go of the breath and see if you can, and then sit again, return your attention to the breath and breath and breath. And after a while, just sit there and see if you can notice two thoughts in a row while remaining mindfully present and alert. Then return to the breath. Then let go of the breath and see if you can notice every thought that comes in the next, say, half a minute. If you get lost in the content of the thoughts, return to the breath and try to notice just one thought or two. By building up gradually, you'll find a greater ability to be mindful of thoughts without getting caught up in their content. It's a very nuanced instruction. See what you do with it. And we'll sit for 20 minutes.
We always leave the last 15 minutes of our sitting for a time that people might like to mention into the air, people that they're thinking about, that whose lives are in some way in a special time, so that we could all think about them together. My friend Rachel has um, had a very good... Uh, 
MRI, which shows no tumor growth, which is a very outstanding thing for someone with a serious brain tumor that she has been having chemo for. She thinks it's because of all the people who are thinking about her. I hope that's true, and I hope she continues well. I hope that our uh, crossing guard is well. Who are you thinking about this morning? My son, about my friend Rick who has a rare cancer that has he got a, a, a not a good report the other day so uh, we're hoping it makes a good U-turn and he gets better real fast I'm needing some prayers for myself it's been a really tough year I've had a lot of loss
Thinking of my friend Sharon back in Michigan. I'm thinking of all the people that we've all mentioned that we are companioning with our love and our attention and all the other people that we didn't mention that we are companioning, who are companioning us in return and wishing for all people that they have someone who can care for them and take care of them through all of the reports of life, positive reports and the disappointing reports. May all beings be supported by the love of their companions through all the days of their lives. May we, in wishing that, find our own hearts lifted up by the power of goodwill. If this is your first time here and you're just accompanying us in these last five minutes of mentioning who we, each of us, are thinking about and caring about, you will know that it's not unusual, but it's actually more or less my habit to say all the time that I think that in some ways that last five minutes is the most important part of the whole time that we spend together. Myself, for myself, um, it's always such a lesson of uh, there are so many things in the world that people can have. They can have X or Y, and and all of a sudden, it's always all of a sudden, you know, because you didn't expect to get sick. My my friend Rachel 
that I've been talking about now for a year was really well, feeling well, teaching, had a headache. And the next day her whole life changed when it was discovered that she had a brain tumor and a really difficult one. And we were all kind of walking along on that road of you don't know where. And everybody's on the same road. And you... And you don't know. Years ago, when I could, at this moment, I'm, I, I don't find this so funny, but years ago there was a, a cartoon that I took out probably from the New Yorker and put it on my refrigerator, which is where everybody puts everything. And it had a man walking along a city street in a business suit, uh, looking happy and jaunty and walking along. And uh, he's reading a paper... Clearly it has reports of um, his medical exam that he must have just had. And it has blood pressure and calcium and hemoglobin and this and that. And they all say normal, 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 normal. He's got this big smile on his face. And what you, the viewer of the cartoon, sees is that there's this enormous safe that somehow has fallen out of an upstairs window of this office building and is on his way down to him. And really, that you know, that's the latter-day equivalent of the monk on the vine, which I've, I've talked about the monk on the vine for the last several weeks, so to, just to bring everybody up to date. The monk on the vine story gets shorter every week. is a, a Zen story that it actually, if you go in Korean monasteries, this is, I think, the most... Um, must be the most favorite story because I see it in most of the paintings that I saw in these Korean temples along the roads or along the highway. And a monk is said to have been walking along a, a, a flat terrain and the full open sun, and suddenly he realizes that from out from the jungle there's come a tiger who is chasing him, and he takes and he takes flight and he's running and running, and the tiger after him running and running. And he comes to the edge of where he can run and there's a great cliff and he grabs onto a vine and falls over the cliff and is hanging onto the vine desperately. And the tiger is growling down at him and there's a huge fall down under him with a river and rocks. Looks up, he looks down. He's hanging onto this thick vine and a mouse comes out from a crevice in the rock and starts, somebody said, uh-oh. <laughs> Mouse comes out from a crevice in the rock and starts gnawing on the vine. So it's already uh-oh, right? And um, over here there's a little uh, sprig of a plant coming also out of the rock, and it's got a, a strawberry on the end of it. And the monk eats the strawberry, and he says, that strawberry was very good. Well, this strawberry is very good which is maybe a better way to do it, no matter what he... If I were drawing it, I'd make it that way. The strawberry is very good. I thought, you know, maybe sometime I'll write another book and I'll call it Look for the Next Strawberry. Or I'll Look for the Nearest Strawberry. <laughs> because every once in a while there's a strawberry. And the rest of it is hanging on the vine. That's a nice way to put that. I like that. 
But I'm so uh, really cognizant of the fact that uh, maybe it's because when I was younger, that was really a funny cartoon. Of course, an office safe falling out of a window is not is already funny, but um, in a certain way, it's a bizarre thing. But to realize that we are always all of us monks hanging on a vine. We are all of us hanging on a vine. We don't know. Where, how far the, no, the mouse had gnawed. My friend with the glioblastoma felt great two days before. Just finished teaching a course, felt wonderful. Blood pressure was great, everything was great, wonderful, great. All of a sudden, not great. And for all of us, if we had in mind, all of a sudden it could be different. Maybe we, it would change the priorities. A long time ago... Uh, well, the, the people who know me well know I've been with the same partner since I was 16 years old, so that's upwards of 60 years now. One of the things sometimes, if something happens and I suddenly have an annoyed feeling about him and almost give voice to it, sometimes I do, truth to tell, but sometimes I, I manage not to, and one of the ways I manage not to is I say to myself, any moment, you don't know, you know, that you don't know. What if today's the day? Is this worth saying? Somebody, one of my friends said her best acronym is WAIT. WAIT, W-A-I-T. Especially with speech, you should think to yourself, why am I talking? Why am I talking? You know, WAIT. It's a little while later, you think it over, and you think, this was not necessary, I could have held that in. It would have passed. I saw this this morning early, I was reading a, a, reading a, um, I was reading a, a story in the latest New Yorker, and there's just a, not related to something else. It says, looking at someone who is looking at you is a drug as strong as any other. That makes sense to you. Looking at somebody who's really looking at you. Looking at somebody who's looking at you. Try it. Look at somebody that you don't even know. Pick out somebody that you don't know and look at them. I don't know, maybe people have other feelings. It picks me up. Does it pick you up? Do you feel shy? I sometimes feel a little shy also if it's someone I don't know because it's a moment of surprising intimacy and I don't even know them. So that's, I think, part of the shy about it. Like, uh-oh, they... What, dear? Well, if they don't want you to be looking at them. so I should have said who's up, who's up for this. Anyway... Really what I want to talk about is not making people other. If we could really see each other past all the stories on the outside. I I have a film that I want to show you. It's a TED Talk uh, that that I've seen now three times, maybe four. And I keep playing it for myself because I learn something each time. But I've been thinking about seeing past 
outer designations and seeing really, looking at someone who's looking at you as a drug. I've been watching the athletes at, uh, at the Olympics. Are you watching? I love it. First of all, somehow the, the things that they choose to show are things I don't know a lot about. I've been watching a lot of luge. Uh, you know. uh, but, you know, whatever it is, it's obviously a skill that people have been practicing for so long. The other reason I wanted to talk about is I wanted to talk about, first of all, that people are not different. People finish an event and they, they know that they take off their skis or they get out of the sled or they do whatever, they stand up, and they know that there's going to be a video camera on them that minute. So they have to look at the video camera. If they just practice four years and they just came out one hundredth of a second into fourth place instead of third, for instance, after four years of practice. So they're probably disappointed or whatever. But they know they're supposed to stand there and look at the audience. And people make universal gestures of nailed it, you know, or what are you going to do? That's the way it is. And they smile and they they look good. And you think to yourself, of course, that they're at the Olympics, they made it in. It doesn't matter if they're fourth. That they got there is already a miracle. And it's a miracle that didn't happen from one person. This is what I've been thinking about. It's been really uplifting for me. I see one person finish an activity. Uh, I particularly, it's easy for me to do this with ice skaters because I have a friend here in the county whose son was a skater. I may have told you about it last week. Did I tell you about that? No? I have a friend who's a contemporary of mine whose son uh, skated from the time he was five or six it was great in the days of Ray Dean's skating rink and they were up every morning at 4.30 and they drove him to Ray Dean's for umpteen years and he had coaches and they all devoted themselves to his ski and he began to win locally and then regionally and then nationally and then internationally then it came to the tryouts to the Olympics for the three people they take the top three people as their figure skating people and he was fourth so you think, uh, but on, on the other hand, of course they feel, uh, but, you know, he made a whole life out of, he's a world-renowned figure skating teacher, and he spends half a year in Asia teaching and half a year in Sun Valley teaching. He's had a marvelous life. He's performed with ice capades and Disney on ice. He's met all kinds of people. He's made lifelong relationships in the moment you feel, mm, but he's got a tremendous skill. And certainly all the people who go to this have a tremendous skill, which they didn't get alone. Their parents helped them, their friends helped them, their, their sports club helped them. I've been starting to look at people and seeing all the people who are behind this person. As this person gets up from the sled, I see their parents and their grandparents and their whole hometown and their whole region of where they came from, and their whole everything back and back and back and back and back, and how their school teachers gave them time off to go and practice. There's a lot of people behind each of those people who got there who are all excited for that person or disappointed for that person, but with the, nobody's alone, and nobody did it by themselves, all those people. I have felt that so long about myself that... Um, 
I, I feel like it's, on the one hand, I'm very surprised I didn't plan to be doing this as my life profession, but I did this and I did that and I did this and I did that, and all of a sudden, here I am doing this. But I didn't do it by design, and I didn't do it alone. Actually, these skaters and skiers, whatever, they did it by design. After a while, I had a design, but I didn't start out. And I definitely didn't do it alone. And all these teachers and teachers before them and other teachers. And my, my really feeling about it is that I'd love to be in this position doing this. I'm very happy with what I'm doing with my life. But I didn't do it alone. I'm really grateful to my whole committee, which is a really widespread committee, including my, my, um, my grandparents who didn't speak English and who never heard of the Buddha, uh, one of my grandmothers, uh, the, who lived with me when I was growing up, took very good care of me. Um, she was very solicitous. My parents both had jobs and went to work, but my grandmother was very solicitous in terms of my physical care. And I remember her making braids in the morning, and cooking my lunch. And, but she didn't have a lot of energy for my occasional moodiness. She, if I felt sick, she was right on top of it. But I'd say, you know what, I'm, not just ha- I'm just not happy. And she'd say to me, where is it written that you're supposed to be happy all the time? <laughs> that is very fundamental Buddhist teaching, you know. Where is it written you're supposed to be happy all the time? That's my gra- that, by the way, is a very Talmudic turn of phrase. You have to say, where is it written? It's written in the Mishnah or the Talmud or something. My grandmother was not a Talmudic sage either, but she knew to use that term. My other grandfather, calamities would happen to him. One of the calamities, the biggest calamity was that my mother died uh, when she was in his four, her 40s and he was in his, he was about 70. And it really was a terrible blow for him. And he pulled himself together after a while and he went back to work because he was working and he said what are you going to do this life and he said that all the time when I was growing up he'd say well what are you going to do that's life that's a really important piece of Buddhist wisdom what are you going to do that's life some people get terrible brain tumors other people get other things everybody gets something eventually sooner or later it's not a mistake our bodies are not permanent we have committees, all of us, and everybody who puts stuff in is part of our committee. It's a great relief because when I, when I, uh, when I'm teaching and I'm in a good form, I think that's great. My whole committee showed up, and if I'm not in such a good form and I forgot a lot and I, I can't remember the story I meant to tell, I think okay, too bad my committee didn't show up, so I don't have to feel too bad about it. I've been thinking about how everybody is everybody. I recently got my results from 23andMe. So on the ethnicity part, I'm not so everybody. As a matter of fact, I'm not so surprised. It said 99.6% of my genes are Eastern European Ashkenazi Jewish genes. I'm not so surprised about that because it was very, 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 very important in those days for uh, the tribe to stay together. All of my children have produced progeny that reduce that amount of Eastern European genes 
by half immediately in them. And uh, my grandchildren all the more. I was going to show you this baby today. I want to show you. I want you, Can you all see this baby? No, I'm going to come around with it. Beautiful baby, isn't it? So this baby is related to me. Her grandfather is my first cousin. I only have two first cousins. My father had no siblings. My mother had one sibling who had a son and a daughter. This is my cousin Henry's granddaughter. Would you, I want, I'll tell you in advance, I know her four grandparents. If they were all standing here, they are all recognizable as representing four different ethnicities. Would you like to guess, so I've already told you one of her grandfathers is my cousin Henry. So he looks like me. Who else do you think his three other grandparents of this baby? Blue, grayish blue. No. 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 No, except my cousin. Korean. Her maternal grandmother is Korean. Native American? No. Yeah. Her maternal grandfather is. Her paternal grandmother is Jamaican. It's a global baby. It's a gorgeous global baby. And the whole idea of, uh, I've been hearing people say race is a construct. It's definitely a construct. This baby doesn't, this baby is a universal baby. And I'm pretty sure that on all those forms where it says check race, we're going to come, I hope, soon to a place where we don't have to do that. I think now it's against the rule anyway on public documents. You don't have to say. I'm just thinking about it in terms of knowing that there's, um, in some uh, the, 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 the studies on implicit bias and in seeing in other people what otherness and stories that have come maybe into our mind because of the otherness are so limiting. And when you see somebody, the first impression that you get is you see them and you say, that's a this, that's a that. I was thinking about... Um, uh, what if uh, I suddenly said by my superhuman 
uh, vision, I can tell that the people sitting either side of you voted completely differently from the way you did last year. You suddenly say, ah. <laughs> Somebody said, come with me, I'm going to a meeting of the Marin, such and such a party, and it's not who I voted for. Would I think, uh-oh, I don't want to go there? How do we stop doing that otherness? And how much of the otherness is what we think we, they are going to be like and is there such a thing as otherness or do we just think because of what we've already been taught to think so now I'm going to get down from here and watch with you this TED talk and then we'll talk about it Just over a year ago, for the third time in my life, I ceased to exist. I was having a small operation. My brain was filling with anesthetic. I remember a sense of detachment and falling apart, and coldness. And then I was back, drowsy and disoriented, but, but definitely there. Now, when you wake from a deep sleep, you might feel confused about the time or anxious about oversleeping, but there's always a basic sense of time having passed, of a continuity between then and now. And coming around from anesthesia is very different. I could have been under for five minutes, five hours, five years, or even 50 years. I simply wasn't there. It was total oblivion. Anesthesia, it's a modern kind of magic. It turns people into objects, and then we hope back again into people. And in this process is one of the greatest remaining mysteries in science and philosophy. How does consciousness happen? Somehow, Within each of our brains, the combined activity of many billions of neurons, each one a tiny biological machine, is generating a conscious experience. And not just any conscious experience, your conscious experience right here and right now. How does this happen? Well, answering this question is so important because consciousness for each of us is all there is. Without it, there's no world, there's no self, there's nothing at all. And when we suffer, we suffer consciously, whether it's through mental illness or pain. And if we can experience joy and suffering, what about other animals? Might they be conscious too? Do they also have a sense of self? And as computers get faster and smarter, maybe there'll come a point, maybe not too far away, when my iPhone develops a sense of its own existence. Now, I actually think the prospects for a conscious AI are pretty remote. And I think this because my research is telling me that consciousness has less to do with pure intelligence and more to do with our nature as living and breathing organisms. Consciousness and intelligence are very different things. You don't have to be smart to suffer, but you probably do have to be alive. In the story I'm going to tell you, our conscious experiences of the world around us and of ourselves within it are kinds of controlled hallucinations that happen with, through, and because of our living bodies. Now, you might have heard that we know nothing about how the brain and body give rise to consciousness. Some people even say it's beyond the reach of science altogether. But in fact, the last 25 years have seen an explosion of scientific work in this area. If you come to my lab at the University of Sussex, you'll find scientists from all different disciplines 
and sometimes even philosophers, all of us together trying to understand how consciousness happens and what happens when it goes wrong. And the strategy is very simple. I'd like you to think about consciousness in the way that we've come to think about life. Now, at one time, people thought the property of being alive could not be explained by physics and chemistry, that life had to be more than just mechanism. But people no longer think that, as biologists got on with the job of explaining the properties of living systems in terms of physics and chemistry, things like metabolism, reproduction, homeostasis. The basic mystery of what life is started to fade away, and people didn't propose any more magical solutions, like a force of life or an élan vital. So as with life, so with consciousness. Once we start explaining its properties in terms of things happening inside brains and bodies, the apparently insoluble mystery of what consciousness is should start to fade away. At least that's, that's the plan. So let's get started. What are the properties of consciousness? What should a science of consciousness try to explain? Well, for today, I'd just like to think of consciousness in two different ways. There are experiences of the world around us, full of sights, sounds and smells, this multi-sensory, panoramic, 3D, fully immersive inner movie. And then there's conscious self, the specific experience of being you or being me, the lead character in this inner movie, and probably the aspect of consciousness we all cling to most tightly. Let's start with experiences of the world around us and with the important idea of the brain as a prediction engine. Now, imagine being a brain. You're locked inside a bony skull trying to figure what's out there in the world. There's no light inside the skull, there's no sound either. All you've got to go on are streams of electrical impulses which are only indirectly related to things in the world, whatever they may be. So perception, figuring out what's there, has to be a process of informed guesswork in which the brain combines these sensory signals with its prior expectations or beliefs about the way the world is to form its best guess of what caused those signals. The brain doesn't hear sound or see light, What we perceive is its best guess of what's out there in the world. Let me give you a couple of examples of all this. Now, you might have seen this illusion before, but I'd like you to think about it in a new way. If you look at those two patches, A and B, they should look to you to be very different shades of grey, right? But they are, in fact, exactly the same shade. And I can illustrate this if I put up a second version of the image here and join it join the two patches with a grey-coloured bar, and you can see there's no difference. It's exactly the same shade of grey. And if you still don't believe me, I'll bring the bar across and join them up. And it's a single coloured block of grey. There's no difference at all. So this isn't any kind of magic trickery. It's the same shade of grey, but take it away again, and it looks different. So what's happening here is that the brain is using its prior expectations built deeply into the circuits of the visual cortex that a cast shadow dims the appearance of a surface so that we see B as lighter than it really is. Here's one more example, which shows just how quickly the brain can use new predictions to change what we consciously experience. Have a listen to this. Sounded strange, right? Have a listen again and see if you can get anything. Still strange. Now listen to this. I think Brexit is a really terrible idea. <laughs> Which I do. Um, so you heard some words there, right? Now listen to the first sound again. I'm just going to replay it. I think Brexit is a really terrible idea. Yeah? So you can now hear words there. Once more for luck. I think Brexit is a really terrible idea. 
Okay, so what's going on here is, is the remarkable thing is the sensory information coming into the brain hasn't changed at all. All that's changed is your brain's best guess of the causes of that sensory information, and that changes what you consciously hear. Now, all this puts the brain basis of perception in a bit of a different light. Instead of perception depending largely on signals coming into the brain from the outside world, it depends as much, if not more, on perceptual predictions flowing in the opposite direction. We don't just passively perceive the world, we actively generate it. The world we experience comes as much, if not more, from the inside out as from the outside in. Let me give you one more example of perception as this active, constructive process. In this, in, here we've combined immersive virtual reality with image processing to simulate the effects of overly strong perceptual predictions on experience. In this panoramic video, we've transformed the world, which is in this case Sussex campus, into a psychedelic playground. We've processed the footage using an algorithm based on Google's Deep Dream to simulate the effects of overly strong perceptual predictions, in this case, to see dogs. And you can see this is a very strange thing. When perceptual predictions are too strong, as they are here, the result looks very much like the kinds of hallucinations people might report in altered states or perhaps even in psychosis. Now, think about this for a minute. If If hallucination is a kind of uncontrolled perception, then perception right here and right now is also a kind of hallucination, but a controlled hallucination in which the brain's predictions are being reined in by sensory information from the world. In fact, we're all hallucinating all the time, including right now. It's just that when we agree about our hallucinations, we call that reality. Now I'm going to tell you that your experience of being a self, the specific experience of being you, is also a controlled hallucination generated by the brain. Now, this seems a very strange idea, right? Yes, visual illusions might deceive my eyes, but how could I be deceived about what it means to be me? For most of us, the experience of being a person is so familiar, so unified and so continuous that it's difficult not to take it for granted. But we shouldn't take it for granted. There are, in fact, many different ways we experience being a self. There's the experience of having a body and of being a body. There are experiences of perceiving the world from a first-person point of view. There are experiences of intending to do things and of being the cause of things that happen in the world. And there are experiences of being a continuous and distinctive person over time, built from a rich set of memories and social interactions. Now, many experiments show, and psychiatrists and neurologists know very well, that these different ways in which we experience being a self can all come apart. And what this means is the basic background experience of being a unified self is a rather fragile construction of the brain, another experience which, just like all others, requires explanation. So let's return to the bodily self. How does the brain generate the experience of being a body and of having a body? Well, just the same principles apply. The brain makes its best guess about what is and what is not part of its body. And there's a beautiful experiment in neuroscience to illustrate this. And unlike most neuroscience experiments, this is one you can do at home. All you need is one of these and a couple of paintbrushes. Now, in the rubber hand illusion, a person's real hand is hidden from view, and that fake rubber hand is placed in front of them. Then both hands are simultaneously stroked with a paintbrush while the person stares at the fake hand. Now, for most people, after a while, this leads to the very uncanny sensation that the fake hand is, in fact, part of their body. 
And the idea is that the congruence between seeing touch and feeling touch on an object that looks like a hand and is roughly where a hand should be is enough evidence for the brain to make its best guess that the fake hand is in fact part of the body. You can measure all kinds of clever things, right? You can measure skin conductance and startle responses, but there's no need. It's clear the guy in blue has assimilated the fake hand. Now, this means that even experiences of what our body is is a kind of best guessing, a kind of controlled hallucination by the brain. Now, there's one more thing. We don't just experience our bodies as objects in the world from the outside. We also experience them from within. We all experience. The sense of being a body from the inside, and sensory signals coming from the inside of the body are continually telling the brain about the state of the internal organs, how the heart is doing, what blood pressure is like, lots of things. And this kind of perception, which we call interoception, is rather overlooked, but it's critically important because perception and regulation of the internal state of the body, well, that's what keeps us alive. Here's another version of the rubber hand illusion. This is from our lab at Sussex. And here, people see a virtual reality version of their hand, which flashes red and back either in time or out of time with their heartbeat. And when it's flashing in time with their heartbeat, people have a stronger sense that it's in fact part of their body. So experiences of having a body are deeply grounded in perceiving our bodies from within. There's one last thing I want to draw your attention to, which is that. Experiences of the body from the inside are very different from experiences of the world around us. When I look around me, the world seems full of objects: tables, chairs, rubber hands, people, you lot. Even my own body in the world, I can perceive it as an object from the outside. But my experiences of the body from within—they're not like that at all. I don't perceive my kidneys here, my liver here, my spleen. I don't know where my spleen is, but. Somewhere,、um, I don't perceive my insides as objects. In fact, I don't experience them much at all unless they go wrong. And this is important, I think. Perception of the internal state of the body isn't about figuring out what's there. It's about control and regulation, keeping the physiological variables within the tight bounds that are compatible with survival. When the brain uses predictions to figure out what's there, we perceive objects as the causes of sensations. When the brain uses predictions to control and regulate things, we experience how well or how badly that control is going. So our most basic experiences of being a self, of being an embodied organism, are deeply grounded in the biological mechanisms that keep us alive. And when we follow this idea all the way through, we can start to see that all of our conscious experiences, since they all depend on the same mechanisms of predictive perception, all stem. From this basic drive to stay alive, we experience the world and ourselves with, through, and because of our living bodies. Let me bring things together step by step. What we consciously see depends on the brain's best guess of what's out there. Our experienced world comes from the inside out, not just the outside in. The rubber hand illusion shows that this applies to our experiences of what is and what is not our body. And these self-related predictions depend critically on sensory signals coming from deep inside the body. And finally, experiences of being an embodied self are more about control and regulation than figuring out what's there. So, our experiences of the world around us and ourselves within it—well, they're kinds of controlled hallucinations that have been shaped 
over millions of years of evolution to keep us alive in worlds full of danger and opportunity. We predict ourselves into existence. Now, I'll leave you with three implications of all this. First, just as we can misperceive the world, we can misperceive ourselves when the mechanisms of prediction go wrong. Understanding this opens many new opportunities in psychiatry and neurology because we can finally get at the mechanisms rather than just treating the symptoms in conditions like depression and schizophrenia. Second, what it means to be me cannot be reduced to or uploaded to a software program running on a robot, however smart or sophisticated. We are biological flesh-and-blood animals whose conscious experiences are shaped at all levels by the biological mechanisms that keep us alive. Just making computers smarter is not going to make them sentient. Finally, our own individual inner universe, our way of being conscious, is just one possible way of being conscious. And even human consciousness generally, it's just a tiny region in a vast space of possible consciousnesses. Our individual selves and worlds are unique to each of us, but they're all grounded in biological mechanisms shared with many other living creatures. Now, these are fundamental changes in how we understand ourselves, but I think they should be celebrated, because as so often in science, from Copernicus, we're not at the center of the universe, to Darwin, we're related to all other creatures, to the present day. With a greater sense of understanding comes a greater sense of wonder and a greater realization that we are part of and not apart from the rest of nature. And when the end of consciousness comes, there's nothing to be afraid of, nothing at all. Thank you. Thanks, Laura. So, what did you think? So, what did you think? Yeah. Well, we have to run with the microphone so we can hear both parts of the conversation. Uh, there we go. One of the things I liked that he was talking about sensory was just the hearing and how, you know, I interpret something versus the person next to me. It can be the same words, <laughs> but um, that struck me within this giant world we live in, how we misinterpret every day um, certain things. Mm -hmm. So, um, and uh, I appreciate talk shows now more, you know, getting different opinions verbally, you know, instead of just on my phone. Oh, that's an interesting end to come to. What else are you thinking about? There. It makes me think about how we probably all remember things differently and we're so sure that we saw something or experienced something and um, it would be good information for, I don't know, people understanding mediating arguments and various things, you know, to really... Mm -hmm. 
No, I, 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 I remember at one time somebody introducing a, a, some sort of psychology discussion and someone was saying, John and Sam grew, uh, are brothers who grew up with different parents. And you think, wait a minute, brothers who grew up with different parents. They grew up with different parents. I, actually, they were John and Mary or something. But everybody's experience of them is different. So, and, uh, yeah. yeah. And people get so, um, I don't know, convinced of a memory. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that it would be interesting to sort of put holes in some of that certainty that we carry around. Well, it's certainly, I, I, I think that's a very big thing that sometimes we have a thought that we think we see something or we dream something and we're not sure it was a dream or a real thing. And then we tell it enough times so we begin to be positive. There was a film, a Japanese film, a long time ago. Uh, wait a minute, what was it? Rashomon. Three people get have different views of, they see a murder committed in a forest. And it's a different thing depending on who saw it. And say, I saw it with my own eyes. But that, that thing with the hand, that's a very compelling thing, isn't it? That you get, you know, that, uh, what else are you thinking? Go ahead. Something with this. Um, I'm struck by two things. I uh, know that all of us will leave here today having had a very different experience, having shared this room um, and heard your talk at the same time. But also, I was kind of thrilled on a sort of superficial level to hear that we were more than just a data point and a robot, mm-hmm. and that, um, that there was some science behind the fact that we're just not an algorithm, that we're certainly much more with our consciousness. And I think it was just a, uh, getting up to that at the end, we're talking about, so do this, the, does this uh, sea animal have consciousness? Um, and uh, how does consciousness manifest? Um, I, uh, the person who turned me on to this um, TED talk is my friend Cliff Saron, who many of you may know. Cliff is, uh, has a neuroscience lab at, at um, UC Davis, and uh, uh, we teach together sometimes. I was thinking in the middle of this, I wish I'd brought Cliff this morning, then he could really talk about it. Uh, more authoritatively than I, but we talked about it yesterday on the telephone, he and I, and we were talking about what it means, sentient being, uh, and because they use that term somewhere near the end of this. And I was thinking sentient being is more than a data point. It doesn't mean, as I don't think it means, as he says in the beginning, that there's an elan vital or that there's a soul, and I think he means it when he says that the consciousness ends, it ends, nothing to worry about. But uh, the thing about sentient beings, when we were saying about who we were thinking about, when you heard somebody say, I'm thinking about my father or my mother or my son or so-and-so who has this or that, you, you, I'm, I'm sure that you feel ah uh, or ah uh, about that. And you don't know the person who's even talking or the person that they mean, or even the exact situation. But you hear a story. I was thinking that the, the name of this talk should be Your Heart Goes Out, because you feel suddenly, ah. Uh, with, with, I told you the story about John and uh, how carefully he helped people cross the street. 
And then that, when I first told the story, and I said, and the next day, he was suddenly missing. Everybody did, ah. Uh, I told um, I told you the story of going to the pound. Did I tell you about the, going to the Humane Society? And um, not picking up, not taking home the four-month-old chihuahua that I almost brought home because she was lying curled up in the corner of her cage and her little face on her little paws. And the Humane Society worker went by us just at that. We were just spending a Sunday afternoon on our way to go someplace, my husband and I, and we stepped in. Here's this little chihuahua. And the Humane Society person says, oh, I, I said, you know, look at her. He said, yes, she's very sad. She's four and a half months old, and she's been here in this cage with her sister. And her sister got adopted yesterday. See, and everybody says, ah, oh. you know. That, but I did that purposely so you could do that and have, and have an example. When I told that to my daughter afterwards, she said, Ma, you didn't bring it home? What's the matter with you? You know, and there's various reasons why I didn't bring it home, but I wished I could, you know, and you all wish it. That sentient being, I talking to Cliff, I said, um, I, don't, I don't know what I told him. Uh, oh, I told him, I told him about the, uh, how impressed I was uh, with reading in um, a book called Behave by uh, Robert Sapolsky about research in uh, mostly primates, but other things as well, into the psychology or whatever you call it. I think he's listed as an anthropologist, Sapolsky. But anyway, he tells about research. Uh, his research over the last 30 years has been with a community of baboons in Africa that have lived, you know, he's got now the great-grandchildren of the original baboons that he saw 30 years ago. But he said uh, has been replicated this kind of work that uh, uh, people viewing a community of female adult uh, baboons sitting together in the afternoon, grooming each other, out of sight of the uh, community of uh, uh, baby baboons playing, infants, young young baboons playing, out of sight. And that if there's suddenly a distress sound, the sound of distressed baby baboon, the first individual to turn her head is the mother of that baby behind the trees hidden from view. And the second individual to turn the head is the aunt of the baboon that made that sound. Cliff said to me that he I'll have to get this from him by next week. He said that they've replicated that sort of stuff with mice, who are not mammals. So really to say that on some uh, neurological level, the species survival, and particularly kin survival, really goes way past being human. It's not so much a human quality, but a quality of life to really be attuned to. And when you think about that, you think, why is the world so evidently, if you look at it, you say, is this a world full of friends? No, look, they're killing each other and shooting each other and taking each other's stuff. And um, Where was someone telling me about 
some way in which somebody had figured out to, they use the expression, game the system, that as soon as you figure out, then you game the system. I thought to myself, no, most of the people that I know are not into gaming systems, you know, that uh, most of the people that I know, given an opportunity, don't take advantage of other people. Somehow I think we get frightened by people who do, and then they take up space in the mind, maybe, I hope, uh, not proportionate to the numbers of people that there are. Because I have a feeling that most people, when you tell them about that that uh, four-month-old chihuahua sitting there who's lonely, I, I told it on Monday night, and I said, really, I'm hopeful that one of you passes by the Humane Society <laughs> and takes home. Maybe you need a four-month-old chihuahua. She's very beautiful. I haven't stopped thinking about her, actually. <laughs> But I like to think that we are more than a dot of data, even though we're not um, we're not otherworldly or divine spark of something. I mean, that would be... But that's an extra story. Maybe it'll turn out to be true, but I think it's... At least it could be an extra story. People who say, this is it, and it's, it, it's not only for humans, it's this is it for anything, that every living being... Someone recommended a book the other day about how trees and forests take care of each other. Are you, is that an, a thing that you've heard about? That when a certain blight comes to threaten a forest, that the trees that it first attacks at a certain end, somehow the word spreads through the trees so that all the way down at this end, these trees start making leaves that are unattractive and don't taste good to that particular blight. They mutate themselves. Isn't that really? I, let's, let's, have, let's have a thing. I will, and you also, look up what's the data on that. The, the, life, of the life of trees? Who wrote that? I can't remember. That's the one in the book. Okay. The Secret Life of Trees. The Secret Life of Trees. You remember what the name of it was? The Secret Life of Trees. Okay. All right, I'm not giving you it as a homework because, <laughs> except if you want to. But it's really nice to feel that we're not, that not only are we not alone because we are part of the whole humanity that I, I think must be suffering terribly from what's going on, but not only the humanity of humans, but the humanity of living beings, or the vitality, because you can't say humanity of living beings, but the, but the vitality of, of human beings. And the earth must be really suffering a lot with the amount of pain in it. And somehow, the, 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 uh, uh, I, it's not despair that I feel as much as compassion. Actually, what I mostly feel is that someday we will replace the idea of love and compassion and empathic joy and equanimity being four different things and we'll really decide that they are all um, just different perspectives of the same thing. I want to end by, because today is Valentine's Day, by uh, reading you... uh, a 
little bit of Nyanapanika. Nyanapanika became a monk in Sri Lanka. He was German by birth. He became a monk in Sri Lanka and wrote some beautiful things. And this is called uh, The Vision of Dhamma. And I, it's actually my favorite Dharma book. I love it. And this particular part I read over and over again. And these are contemplations on what I call the four sublime states. It talks about the sublime state of love where love lies like a soft but firm hand on ailing beings, ever unchanged in its sympathy. Love that is, comfort, is a comforting coolness to those who burn with the fire of suffering and passion. And it is life-giving warmth to those abandoned in the cold desert of loneliness, to those who are shivering in the frost of a loveless world, to those whose hearts have become as if empty and dry by repeated calls for help, by deepest despair. You think of some of those pictures of refugees making their way from one continent to another, always with a baby here and a baby there. I look at those mothers and I think to myself, they can't put them down. I mean, and they don't want to. Trying to find some place where they can sit down with them and be there and be with them and be held. Could we just do that in the world and take in everything? The... um, the march in San Rafael is a, a response to, an, a, a particular response at this point to the um, increased intensity of the immigration uh, people. It's really the opposite of give me your tired and you're weary. And we're, we're there. So that um, I'm glad to show up, if even for a little bit, just so there'd be people there. But then in the, his, he goes on to talk about what's the definition of suffering. And it says, the world is suffering. Most people have their eyes and ears closed. They don't see the unbroken stream of tears flowing through life. They don't hear the cries of distress continually pervading the world. Their own little griefs and joys bar their sight and deafen their ears. Bound by selfishness, their hearts turn stiff and narrow. It is compassion that removes that heavy bar, opens the door to freedom, makes the narrow heart as wide as the world. Compassion takes away from the heart the inert weight, the paralyzing heaviness. It gives wings to those who cling to the lowlands of self. The compassion of wise people does not render them victims of suffering. Thoughts, words, and deeds are filled with compassion and their heart does not waver Unchanged, it remains serene and calm. How else can I help? What else can I do? To show the world the path leading to the end of suffering, that's the highest realization. The two others, that's love and compassion, the two others are empathic joy and equanimity. I think of them particularly when I watch the, um, the Olympics 
I'm so thrilled with these people who do these amazing things. I watch the slow, what was it called, slow slope or whatever it is, but people skiing down Mogoli Hills and in between one long hill of moguls and the next and the next, they do somersaults and put their skis in the air and cross them and helicopter around and land on their feet and then down the next ones. That's amazing. Good for them. Good for their mothers. Good for their teachers. Good for their bodies. Good for whoever planned their nutrition. Good for whatever. They're all amazing-looking young people. I want so much for them to be a world for them to get old in. You know, I, you know, I myself am already old, but it has to be a world for them to get old in, to be able to rejoice for them that they can do that sort of stuff. I have a lot of empathic joy. And I think though all of it depends on, they usually put equanimity as a separate one, but I, I think that equanimity is the, is the mind state or the condition that supports really wishing well for everybody and really feeling compassion for everybody. You say, well, think about people who are suffering. I really think the definition of everybody who's suffering is everybody. Everybody. Even those people who look like they're having a great time. I mean, and may they. I mean, the Buddha didn't say you shouldn't have a great time. But to know that we're all hanging on a vine and you don't know. Everybody is in that degree of vulnerability. So you can exp- uh, you know, applaud and be happy when things are going great. But we're all in a vulnerable place. And if you realize that, you can't spend a second begrudging or being bitter about things because I don't want to mess up this moment or this day. It all depends on wisdom. So I'm very happy that you are here. And uh, I think I'm still here next week again. <laughs> it was a long period of time that I'm here. That, that, and then Donald will be back. We can all have a closing moment of thinking good thoughts for Donald, who is still sitting up the hill and I hope really enjoying himself a lot. And let's all go out of here and come back next week. Uh, what, Lynn? Did you make it? You made a Valentine for everybody. I love that. Do you know when I was when we were? Do you remember being in the second or third grade where everybody had to bring a Valentine for everybody? That's great. Lynn is giving you a Valentine. Happy Valentine's Day. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.